0: Please open your copies of God's Word with me to the Old Testament book of Joel. Most of you have a blank page between the Old and New Testament somewhere in your Bible. The 12 books immediately to the left of that blank page are collectively known as the Minor Prophets of which Joel is one. This summer, as we've announced here at First Baptist Keller, we plan on taking a jet tour through all 12 of the Minor Prophets. I say a jet tour because it's going to be fast moving. Uh, Just one message on each book and it will be a high altitude overview, not a deep um, dive into each verse. But we will attempt to land on one pericope in each of the books and to emphasize that theme. Last week we began with the book of Hosea in which God used Hosea's dysfunctional marriage as a metaphor for Israel's unfaithfulness to him. Well, today in the book of Joel, we'll see how God used a localized natural disaster, namely a locust infestation, to preview His coming end times judgment. Now, you remember that we call these 12 books the Minor Prophets simply because they are generally shorter in length than books like, say, Isaiah or Jeremiah. But their message is equally inspired and equally important and as much a part of the canon of Scripture as any other book. Now I said last week that we know almost nothing about Hosea. Well, we know even less about Joel. Basically his name is Joel, which means the Lord is God. Jehovah Lord El God, the Lord is God. It was a very common Hebrew name. In fact, it's one of my favorite male names today. I have several friends named Joel, some in this room. Um, We also know his father's name, which was Petul. And there you have the sum total of Joel's biography. We know his name and his father's name. We believe that he wrote in the eighth century BC, but we can't even be sure of that. But what is clear is the theme, which Dr. Norris already gave you, which is the day of the Lord. And the message of the day of the Lord is a message that is timely in every generation, including our own. And we find the phrase, the day of the Lord, nearly 20 times in the Old Testament prophets between the major and the minors. Um, The day of the Lord defined is a future time of judgment when God pours out wrath. Now, it has usually immediate implications. That is, you have some disaster that's happening in the present that is a day of the Lord. But the day of the Lord is an eschatological moment. Eschatology is the future. It's end times. It's still in the distant future from his perspective. Now we see both of these implications in the book of Joel. The immediate implication was that localized drought and then which was followed by a locust infestation which stripped the land bare of any sort of greenery. And then the eschatological implication is what I believe is described in the New Testament by Jesus as the great tribulation followed by the book of Revelation's view of the millennial kingdom, the thousand year reign of Christ on earth. So let's look at the structural outline. This is gonna be our pattern on one side of the page that you received when you came in is the structural outline of the whole book, just three chapters. And then the other side is the pericope we're gonna look at today, which is chapter three, beginning in verse nine. Let's begin though by reading the first four verses of Joel. Joel chapter one, verses one through four. He writes the word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, O elders, and listen all inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days or in your father's days? Tell your sons about it. Let your sons tell their sons and their sons the next generation what the gnawing locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust has left, the creeping locust has eaten. And what the creeping locust has left, the stripping locust has eaten. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of this, his word. Now this is a disaster but it's a unique disaster. There are disasters, and then there are disasters. So he asked a rhetorical question in verse 2, has anything like this ever happened in Israel? Has your grandfather ever told you anything like this? The answer that's implied is no. Now, they've had a series of disasters in that part of the world. There's always been locusts. Any of you that have been farmers know you have to fight pests all the time, but he's talking about the severity and the all-encompassing nature of this Locust infection. He gives us the four stages, I believe. In your King James Bible, it's four different kinds of locusts, but I think really in the original, it's the four stages of development of this locust. And in every stage of development, a different sort of uh, flora is destroyed. It includes the grapevines, the wheat, uh, the grass, even the pastures. As we'll see, even the animals are implicated. Um, It's a unique disaster because of its profound seriousness. It's all-encompassing. And we see that comprehensive nature because he calls witnesses to it. And amazing, look at verse 5. The first witness he draws to say this is a unique disaster are the drunkards. He says, Awake drunkards and weep and wail, all you are wine drinkers. Now, why would a drunkard want to weep because of locust infestation? because it's going to eat all the grapes. (laughs) There's not going to be any wine in the fall, and they're not going to have anything to drink. And then he calls the priest to weep because they're not going to have any wheat to offer to the Lord in worship. And then, of course, the farmers are called to weep because they've been economically devastated as their crops are destroyed. And look at verse 18. As I said, even the animals, how the beasts groan, the herds of cattle wander aimlessly because there's no pasture for them. So it's an all-encompassing incredibly destructive sort of disaster. And in chapter two, we see he calls it the day of the Lord, or that day. Look at verse one, chapter two. He says, blow a trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm on my holy mountain that all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming. Now we see some things about this day of the Lord. Verse one, we see its nearness. You're not gonna have to wait very long. We see its severity in verse two a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness as the dawn is spread over the mountain. So there's a great and mighty people. There has never been anything like it, nor will there ever be again. We see its destructiveness in verse three, a fire consuming before them and behind them. And in the midst of all of that comprehensive destruction, we see God offering mercy. Chapter two, verse 12, he says, yet even now declares the Lord, Return to me with all your heart and with fasting, weeping, and mourning, and rend your heart and not your garment. You see, in the ancient world then and today, when someone in the the Middle East wants to express great grief or sorrow, they tear their robe. They rend their garments, it was called. But God says, I don't care about your garments. I want your heart to be torn. I want you to be truly contrite and broken over your sin. And then he says, I'll send mercy. Verse 13 says, I am gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, relenting of evil. And, and that's who God is. And he has incredible restorative power. Even though these locusts destroy the land, God is able to bring it back. Verse 18, then the Lord will be zealous for his land and will have pity on his people. The Lord will answer and say to his people, behold, I'm going to send you grain. New wine and oil, and you will be satisfied in full with them. And I will never again make you a reproach among the nations. I will remove the northern army. These locusts were so large and fast moving, he compared them to a marching army. I will drive them into a parched and desolate land that is out into the wilderness, and it's vanguard into the sea. I'll blow them into the ocean, and the stench of their bodies will arise, and a foul smell will come up, for it has done great things. God says, look, if you'll repent, I'll take this pestilence from the land and I will restore the land back to prosperity. And we see here the restorative power of God. And in chapter 3, we realize what he was doing with this localized infestation of locusts is pointing them to a greater and more severe and far more encompassing day of judgment, which is the day of the Lord that he talks about beginning in verse one of chapter three, says, for behold, in those days, and the Old Testament, when you see the phrase, those days or these days, he's talking about the end time. For behold, in those days, and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my inheritance, Israel, whom they had scattered among the nations, And they divided up the land, they cast lots of my people, they traded a boy for a harlot and sold a girl for wine that they may drink. Now Israel was in trouble because of their own sin. We saw that in Hosea. He says, because of your iniquity. And yet God used people even more sinful than they to judge them. Places like Tyre and Sidon, Babylon and Assyria, far more wicked than Israel was. And God used them to punish Israel. So are they acquitted? Those from Tyre and Sidon? No, not at all. God now is going to give them their judgment. And he calls them ostensibly to a battlefield. But really he's calling them to his judgment. I want to spend the rest of our time this morning, if I can, on Joel chapter 3, verses 9 through 21. The title of the message is Israel's Coming revival because there's two things that's going to happen when this prophecy is fulfilled and I believe it is yet to be fulfilled but I think it's coming soon and those two things are one the tribulation of the nations that is the judgment of all of Israel's enemies and secondly the restoration of Israel so let's read now Joel chapter 3 verses 9 through 21 proclaim this among the nations this is God speaking "'Prepare a war, rouse the mighty men. "'Let all the soldiers come near, let them come up. "'Beat the plowshares into swords "'and your pruning hooks into spears. "'Let the weak say, I'm a mighty man. "'Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, "'and gather yourselves there. "'Bring down, O Lord, your mighty ones. "'Let the nations be aroused "'and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, "'for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations.'" "'Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. "'Come, tread, for the winepress is full. "'The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. "'Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. "'For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. "'The sun and moon grow dark. "'The stars lose their brightness. "'The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. "'The heavens and the earth tremble. "'The Lord is a refuge for his people "'and a stronghold to the sons of Israel.'" Then you will know that I am the Lord your God dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. So Jerusalem will be holy and strangers will pass through it no more. And in the day the mountains will drip with sweet wine and the hills will flow with milk and all the brooks of Judah will flow with water. The spring will go up from the house of the Lord to water the valley of Shittim. Egypt will become a waste and Edom will become a desolate wilderness because of the violence done to the sons of Judah." in whose land they have shed innocent blood. But Judah will be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem for all generations. And I will avenge their blood, which I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. The Lord dwells in Zion. Well, chapter 2 uses the real and present disaster of locust and drought to transition to a prophecy, as I said, of what I believe is the great tribulation. Now that's not my phrase, that's the phrase of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 24 and 25 in his Olivet Discourse, Jesus said this, For then there will be a great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Did you notice the similarity between what Jesus said about the great tribulation, which is yet in the future, and what Joel said about the tribulation of his day? There's never been anything like it in the past, and there's never going to be anything like it in the future. I said there's two things that God will accomplish in this tribulation. One is the end of discipline of Israel. And I think since this moment, till this day, Israel has been under the discipline of God. The scripture says those the Lord loves, he disciplines. If you had loving parents, you know that's true, right? God has allowed the Syrians to disperse the northern kingdom all over the world. He allowed the Babylonians to come and bring the southern kingdom into captivity for 70 years and up until 1948 there was no nation of Israel. And so one of the reasons I think the end is near is the reestablishment of that nation so that these prophecies and others like them can be fulfilled. Paul predicted the end of this discipline in Romans chapter 11 we studied it just a few months ago in this room. Remember what he said Romans 11:25 for I do not want you brothers to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with him when I take away their sins. Paul says when the, the last Gentile is saved, then God's going to send a revival and an awakening to national Israel. And so I believe that the day of the Lord in the future begins with this seven-year period of tribulation, and then it includes uh, the restoration of Israel, where all Israel will be saved, and it includes the judgment of the nations. It begins in verse 9, though, with a summons to war. It's as if God puts his fingers in the sides of his mouth and whistles to all of the wicked kingdoms of the world... To assemble to battle. It's a call to arms. He says, come one, come all. But here's the thing, dear friends, about going to war with God. Are you ready? When you go to war with God, you're going to lose. He is undefeated. He's what the old preacher said of the prodigal son in the New Testament when he read that message to his people. He says, boy, your arms are too short to box with God. He calls them to the place of the valley of Jehoshaphat, which means the place of judgment. See, the enemies of God think they're going to fight, but what they're really going to do is to be judged because court is now in session. And that's our second point beginning verse 12. It's a session of judgment. You know that when the bailiff walks into the courtroom, he says, all rise because court is now in session. And when the judge sits in his seat of authority, That's what the word session means, to sit down. Scripture says God now beside him is seated, Jesus at his right hand. We call that the session of the Lord Jesus. But he sits to judge. Here's the thing about God's judgment it's perfect, isn't it? He is a righteous judge, which means he does everything right and in order, he's a qualified judge. There's a big debate going on in Washington, D.C. these days at the Senate hearings about the qualifications of some of the appointees to the judiciary. Some of them seem not to know basics of law. Are they really qualified is the question. Well, I can answer that for the Lord. He is qualified to judge us, isn't he? Here are his qualifications. He's omniscient. He knows everything. He's omnipresent. He's experienced everything at once. And he's omnipotent. He's strong enough to carry out his holy will. But not only is he a righteous and a qualified judge, his most important qualification, he's just. Now I think we have the greatest judicial system in the world, but it doesn't mean it's perfect. We know experientially and through anecdotal evidence that there are times when justice is not served in this country, but it always is with God. Now, that sounds like a good thing at first blush, but it's really not because none of us are just. (laughs) All of us are sinners and God has declared in His justice that the wages of sin is death. We all deserve the death penalty. And God is not only the judge who declares us guilty, He's also the executioner. Listen to Revelation 14 verses 17 through 20, speaking of that end time judgment. John writes, and another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven and also had a sharp sickle. Then another angel, the one who has the power over fire came out from the altar and he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle saying, put in the sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth because her grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. Now hear what Joel said. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. This is a picture of that eschatological judgment that's coming in the future for all those who reject Christ it's a terrible day. It's a day of wrath. And we do our neighbors a great disservice when all we do is present God as a loving teddy bear. God is just. He hates sin and he must punish sin. And one day he will. And it's this vivid imagery of the angels gathering humanity as harvesters would great clusters of grapes using a sickle, which is, of course, the symbol of death even in our own country. He takes that sharp blade with a handle on it and he would gather these clusters of grapes and they'd throw it in a vat and then someone would stomp it and separate the juice from the grape and it would fill up and overflow. But the image here is not of grape juice but of blood, of course. It's a great and terrible day of judgment. And as I said, when you do battle with God you lose and therefore in verse 14 we see a roar of victory from God he says multitudes multitudes in the valley of decision I've heard evangelists in revival meetings use this about their own crusade evangelism well there God has sent multitudes and you're in the valley of decision and you've got to decide whether to follow Christ or not that's not at all what he's saying here He's saying he's gathered these people in the valley of judgment. That's what the word decision means. And it's already been decided. Judgment is now happening. The day of grace is over. And so he says, verse 15, The sun and moon grow dark, and the stars lose their brightness. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and earth tremble. It's an earthquake, and the Lord is the refuge of his people and a stronghold. To the sons of Israel. This is exactly what we see in the book of Revelation. As the tribulation happens, as the seals are open, one after another, the sun is darkened, just as those locusts in the sky were so thick they blocked out the sun that there's going to be darkness associated with God's judgment. There's going to be earthquakes. This is a visitation of the Lord. And for those that don't know him, it will be incredibly frightening. In fact, Jesus says they're going to cry out to the rocks to fall on them. And what's He going to do? He's going to roar like a lion, celebrating His victory. The Lord will roar from Zion. I believe this speaks of the Lord Jesus who's coming to set up His earthly kingdom. Now, you remember when Jesus appeared in His first advent. He came very lowly. He was the suffering servant of Isaiah. He rode into Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey, a symbol of peace and humility. Look Revelation says when he comes again, he's coming on a white war horse with a sword coming from his mouth and a sash across his chest, declaring his title, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And he will rule, the scripture says, with an iron scepter. And yes, the scripture says as he stood before Pilate when accusations were being brought to him that as a sheep to the slaughter, he opened not his mouth. But when he comes again, he will be the Lion of Judah who lets out a great war, roar of victory. Jesus is the Lamb, but he's also the Lion. And then we see fourthly a restoration of blessing. Look at verse 17. Then... You will know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain, so Jerusalem will be holy, and strangers will pass through it no more. that Jerusalems going to be a capital city. It's no longer going to be a byword among the nations. And then that day the mountains will drip with sweet wine, and the hills will flow with milk, and the brooks of Judah will flow with water, and the spring will go out from the house to the Lord to water the valley of, of Shittim. Now you remember that when the Hebrew children were wandering in the wilderness. They got close to the Jordan River. They sent spies into the promised land. And you remember the report that they brought back. They brought back these huge clusters of grapes. And they said it is a land flowing with milk and honey. And one day God's going to make it that way again. Some of you have been to that part of the world lately. And that's not how you describe it. I've seen your pictures. It's a desolate land. But once it was a garden of Eden. Now it's desolate. One day it will be lush again when God restores all things. And just as those locusts destroyed that land in that localized infestation, God promised to bring it back. One day he's going to restore this world that's been devastated and cursed because of sin. And then we will know that he is the Lord God dwelling in Zion on his holy mountain. Verse 18 says, and in that day, the mountains will drip with sweet wine. The hills will flow with milk, but his enemies will be defeated. Verse 19, Egypt will become a waste. Eden will become a desolate wilderness because of the violence done to the sons of Judah. In those land, they will shed innocent blood, but Judah will be inhabited forever. All generations, I will avenge their blood for the Lord dwells in Zion. I believe, friends, this is speaking of the millennial kingdom, and that may mean a be a new phrase to you. You know the word millennia means a thousand. And I believe that Jesus is gonna set up a literal thousand year reign on earth before what we call heaven or the eternal state. Now, I didn't make that up. That's in the Bible. You don't believe me. Look at Revelation chapter 20. Turn there. This is the last thing today. Revelation chapter 20. Remember John, the apostle was given, as I often say at funerals, the greatest privilege any human ever received, and that he was transported supernaturally into the throne room of heaven, and he got to see how this world ends. And to bring us comfort in the here and now, he was told to write down what he saw. And here's what he wrote right at the very end of scripture, Revelation 20, verse one. He says, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven Holding the key of the abyss and the great chain in his hand, and he laid hold of the dragon. Now, who's the dragon? Well, he tells us, the serpent of old, who is the devil, Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him to the abyss and shut it and sealed it off over him, so that he would not deceive the nations any longer. Until the thousand years was completed, after these things he must be released for a short time. And then I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshiped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years was completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part In the first resurrection, over these the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for how long? A thousand years. Six times we see that phrase, a thousand years. Now, I don't remember much from seminary. but I remember day one in hermeneutics, Mark. They said if something is repeated over and over, it's important. So underline that, a thousand years. Now, I don't say this jokingly you know that there's great disagreement in the evangelical church about the meaning of this chapter. And I want to tell you where I stand on it. So there are basically three camps when it comes to those who take this chapter seriously. The first used to be very popular. It's called the post-millennial view, post meaning after. And their idea is that what's going to happen in earth and in society is that Christians are going to have a greater and greater influence on the government and upon culture in general until it becomes such a wonderful place to live that Jesus will want to come back and reign here. Now that was really popular until the 20th century when things like World War I and World War II came along and nuclear war and then we realized it's not getting better. And so that point of view is is almost gone out of existence though I do know some who hold to it still. A much more popular view in in modern times is one that many of my best friends hold, which is the amillennial view. Ah meaning no. They don't think there is such thing as a literal thousand year reign. They think that it's a metaphor for an unspecified period of time from the time that Jesus ascended to heaven until he returns. Now, the problem with that is if it's a metaphor, it was very inadequate in my estimation because It's been 2,000 years since Jesus ascended into heaven. And whoever used a metaphor for an unspecified great period of time that's half as long as the real thing? If we're going to use a metaphor, we use a hyperbole. We exaggerate the number. We don't minimize the number. So there are many other reasons why I'm not a non-millennialist. And so I'm what we call a a premillennialist, which I believe that Jesus will come back before the literal thousand year reign here upon the earth. Now, you don't have to be a premillennialist to be a Baptist or a member of this church, Um, but to be in agreement with your pastor, you do, okay? (laughs) So, um, I didn't have that in my notes. I shouldn't have said that. how, How are we gonna wrap this up? These are deep things, I know. Whether you're a pre-millennialist or post-millennialist or as one person told me, he's a pan-millennialist. He thinks it's all going to pan out in the end. <laughs> if you're a Christian, you don't have to fear death. You don't have to fear judgment. You don't have to fear the wrath of God. How do I know Romans 8.1? For well, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When we read about the sickle going into the grapes. And we read about the blood up to the horse's bridles. That's not for us. That's for those who reject Christ. John 3:16. for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish. That is under the wrath of God but would have everlasting life. So don't fear death and don't fear God's judgment if you're a Christian. If you don't know Christ, you're not a Christian, fear it. You should. But the good news is there's still an opportunity for you today to repent. Just as that thief on the cross, it's time. But today is the day of salvation. If you don't know him, you can today. How? Well, we saw it last week in Hosea. You have to bring words to him. You have to say, this has come upon me because of my own iniquity. You have to own it. Confess it. And then you have to appeal to God's graciousness. Remember, the root word of graciousness is grace. It means free gift. You have to realize that you have to come to Christ on his turn with empty hands and outturned pockets. Lord, have mercy upon me, the the sinner. He says, when you do that, you'll find me to be a God of mercy. And you'll find that I'm a God of restoration. Again, look at verse 25 of Joel chapter 2. Verse 25, speaking of God's ability to restore, he says, if you'll repent, then I will make up to you the years that the swarming locusts have eaten, the creeping locusts, the stripping locusts, the gnawing locusts, my great army which I sent among you, you will have plenty to eat and be satisfied and praise the name of your God who has dealt wondrously with you. You will never be put to shame. Now unfortunately, like they always do, the prosperity preachers have co-opted this verse and made it mean something it never was meant to mean. They love this verse. They like to say, aha! If you're a Christian, God has promised to make you healthy and happy and wealthy. No, he has not. He has promised that ultimately he's going to restore what was broken because of sin, which means this earth and it means everyone who's put their faith in Christ is ultimately going to receive resurrected bodies which never wear out again and never get cancer and will never Die. My friend Justin Peters calls this an example of overrealized eschatology. Here's how you can stay in on the right road of eschatology on verses like this. You have to remember one thing. This there is a heaven. This ain't it. Okay? It's coming, but this isn't it that we're living in now. But he has the ability to restore. Not only with resurrected bodies, he has the ability to restore relationships that have been broken in this life. He can heal bodies. We believe that. But he doesn't always choose to. He can give back that which was taken in years of sin. There's one more application I want to make because our time is gone. I mentioned earlier that we live in an era where we are inundated with disaster, Right? It's everywhere. I think part of that is everybody's got a camera now. Used to, you'd have to wait weeks until the newspaper reporter found out about it and you read about it. But now it's instant. We, we see it, people send it to us. And if we're not careful, we can be paralyzed and overwhelmed by the train disaster and the war that's going on in the Ukraine. What are we to do with all this disaster? Well, I said a couple things. Number one, recognize God is sovereign. Don't pretend for a moment he didn't have anything to do with it or doesn't know about it. He took ownership of this locust plague. He said, I sent it. And here's how I define the sovereignty of God nothing happens or has ever happened or will happen that God didn't either allow or cause. That's God's sovereignty. He's not helpless, He's not watching and learning with us, He's God. And then when we recognize God's sovereignty in disaster, we are to learn the correct lesson from it. Now in Jesus' day, there were a couple of terrible disasters. One was a tower that was being constructed, fell on some bystanders and killed them instantly. Seemed meaningless and cruel. People came to Jesus and said, what's the meaning of this? Another example was that there were some soldiers that mercilessly killed some innocent people as they were worshiping. And they want to know what's the meaning of this. And Jesus, to their great surprise, said, here's the meaning. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And Jesus wasn't being cruel. He was being realistic. What he's saying is God's judgment will become upon all those who reject him suddenly, and very violently. But what happens is because we sin so often and nothing seems to happen, the world keeps spinning and the sun comes up, we get the notion that God doesn't care or that he won't ever judge sin. You know what Paul compared it to? He says when we sin and God doesn't kill us instantly because he's already said the wages of sin is death. He says we are storing up wrath against the day of wrath. And every time I think about that verse, I think of the Hoover Dam, which I've visited numerous times. It stood on that wall and looked down on one side to the canyon below and on the other side into Lake Mead. And I read about the millions of tons of concrete that were poured in there. And I read about the volume of water that it's holding back. And I know that if that dam were to suddenly break, not only would I be swept away, but thousands of people downriver Would be destroyed in an instant. That's what he means when he says when we sin and God doesn't judge us immediately, he's storing up wrath against the day of wrath. That pressure is building day after day. And one day he says, (laughs) the day of grace is over. The window of opportunity is shut and it's the great Day of the Lord. I don't want any of you to experience that. I don't want to experience that. I don't want anyone I know to experience that. And so that's why our message of salvation is so urgent. That's why that person stopped you in the hall, Dr. Norris, and shared the gospel with you. They were concerned. They want to know that you weren't going to experience that wrath. And what about your neighbors, your friends, your loved ones, your family members? Do you care? that when the day of the Lord comes, it's going to be as a thief in the night, they're not gonna be expecting it. So it's our job to warn them, to go to them and say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand and offer them the good news gospel that whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the book of Joel. And Lord, it's a short three chapter book, but it's powerful. Lord, through that localized locust infestation, Joel was pointing to the future, the tribulation. Father, where wrath that this world has never experienced before is gonna be poured out. It's a terrible day. Lord, I'm grateful that because of the blood of Jesus, because of the faith he has granted us, those that know him will not experience it. But Lord, many will so many that Joel couldn't even number them, he just said multitudes, multitudes, in the valley of decision. So Father, I pray if there's anyone in this room today that knows you not as Lord and Savior, that they would delay no longer, that they'd realize that every breath that they breathe and every time their heart beats, it's a manifestation of your mercy, not of their goodness, that you would grant faith and repentance to some soul here today, that they would come to you on your terms, empty hands, out pockets. Nothing in my hands I bring, only to the cross I cling. Father, that's a prayer that you hear because as you describe yourself here in Joel, you are merciful, slow to anger, eager to forgive. Lord, I pray that will be the order of the day today. May you be glorified through the salvation of sinners in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast.